Hi, welcome back to Behind Startup Lines with me, Phil Guest. Today I'm talking to Joe Matheson, founder, partner and co-CEO of Firefly, which was founded by Joe and his co-founder Simon while they were taking their GCSEs to help teachers and fellow students access information online. These systems are pretty well known now. If you've got kids, you'll know at school that they use them to get their homework assignments and to keep updated what's coming up. But Joe and Simon were really the pioneers of creating these systems. And while they were taking their exams, they were able to convince the school to give them their first customers money to be able to build that platform for them. Firefly secured the largest Series A funding for any edtech company in the UK, $4.5 million in early 2019. They went on to close their Series B funding for another $5.5 million. And then in 2023, they were acquired by Veracross, a leading provider of cloud-based school information systems with more than 1,500 primary and secondary schools around the world. Joe graduated from Oxford University with a degree in philosophy, politics and economics before going on to join UBS as a trading intern. After spending some time on the trading floor, he decided to put all of his effort behind building this business. So let's get stuck into it. So welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thanks. It's great to be here. I've actually really enjoyed listening back over the other episodes um, and it's an honour to be able to join the show. Thank you. Thank you so much, Joe. So why don't we start with telling us a little bit about your business, Fireflies, and your story up until this point. And then we can get into some of the detail about how you really built the commercial side of your business, which is the area that we're interested in diving deeper in. Sure. So Firefly originally started really as an idea at school. So me and my co-founder actually know each other from school. And if you can think back that far, and it ages me somewhat, the internet was taking off and you could get to all this stuff online. And we could kind of see that the internet was really, really useful. But actually, if you wanted to find out what's my homework or what do I need to study for an exam that perhaps I've left it a bit too late, that just wasn't available online. And we wanted to make that possible and make it really easy for our teachers to post that kind of information up so that we could actually solve our own problem as students. And that was where the original genesis of the idea came from. And we built an initial prototype for our own school and it took off very, very quickly. And we used to get pulled out of lessons by teachers saying, can you make it do this or stop it from doing that or show me how to do the other, which was quite good fun, to be honest, a nice distraction from school sometimes, but also meant looking back that we learned a lot about the product. But it then became essentially a part time business, first through school. And then I went off to university and then I actually worked in the city on the trading floor for two and a half years, really enjoyed that saw a lot of change of technology in in that role as well. But we got to 30 customers as this side business. And it got to a point, the trading floor is quite a busy place. And I kind of knew I needed to make a decision about whether to go for the next promotion on the trading floor, or actually go and do the crazy side business full time. And so I quit my job to focus on Firefly full time. And that's when really it became a proper business. Just talk a bit about that then. How did it kind of start to grow and how did it spread to those initial 30 customers? Yeah, so as we got our first customer, which was our own school. So that was a bit of a special case. But what it did mean is that we had a really good understanding from that project, if you like, of what schools needed. 
what we were doing hadn't been done before. There weren't people with school communication systems or homework setting systems. And while we were still at school, to get to those initial 30 customers that I mentioned, we essentially managed to get those initial customers through referrals. So a school would come to our school and see what they were doing. And it was innovative. And they'd ask, you know, how have you done this? What's the magic behind this? And so we would then get invited in. And again, it was quite a fun experience going and talking to a head teacher age 16. Some head teachers were turned off by that. Amazingly, some were not. And that's where we got our initial set of clients. But it really was by referrals. And I think that changed when I then went full time on the business. And probably two or three days in, having quit my job, realized that I couldn't just sit there and wait for the phone to ring. And as much as referral sales were great, I needed to do something proactively to literally have something to do, or I was just going to be sitting in my flat each day. And I still come across people today who say that good products sell themselves, and I couldn't disagree more. (laughs) I've literally sat there and realized that 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 just doesn't happen in, in my experience, certainly in our space. So that was a sort of, I guess, a learning and an important point was starting to do proactive marketing, starting to do outbound calling as well. Lots of people, again, were wonder whether it would work in our sector. And so I just thought, well, the worst that can happen is we try it. And sure enough, it was extremely successful. And I was able to fill up my diary driving the, the most of the ways of the UK with a team who were experienced just every day hitting the phones and talking to schools. And I think we did have an understanding of, for that initial growth period, kind of which schools to target. And that really helped. I think when I first quit my job, I wondered whether Firefly could be relevant to sort of everybody, you know, all types of businesses need some kind of communication system. And again, quite quickly learned that the way we could succeed was honing in on your ideal client, essentially, although I didn't know it was called that at the time. But what customers are you going after? That was definitely a kind of early learning. And we started to scale And it was definitely a key milestone when we started to win some of those deals where we'd actually reached out to the school and they hadn't necessarily heard lots about us. Can we go back then to the first customer? So you get your school. I mean, they must love this. I mean, they're supporting two students. You're innovating something. They instantly see the value in it. How much did you charge them? Very initially, we charged them a few grand of sort of holiday work. Literally, the very first thing was done on literally our work. But very early on, and this was with our first customer, we had some great advice, which was to charge for a subscription for the software. And this seems so obvious today that it almost doesn't bear thinking about. This was the year that Salesforce was founded. Did the submodel come almost next customer or did you get several in before you realised that? And then what did that subscription look like? The model was at the time you sold a big upfront cost of the software, a bit like we'd done, although it wasn't a very big upfront cost, but you sold some upfront cost. And then maybe you sold a bit of maintenance fee to sort of make sure it continued working. From very, very early on, we sold a subscription. And that did really help us, particularly in the bootstrap phase of growing our business, start to hire people and so on. It was one of the best pieces of advice we had as we were starting off. And was that a per seat model or was it a, a volume model? No, we, so we actually did it for the very first customer. We turned around to them and we'd done a few revisions of the software and said, well, if you keep wanting revisions of this software and you keep wanting to run it and ask us questions about it, we really need an ongoing charge. So we managed to secure an ongoing subscription from that very first school and they're still a customer today, which is amazing. Did you then, when you said that you aligned to the way in which they were getting their money, 
Did that mean you had to be creative about when you charge them? So was it a straight monthly fee that they paid all the time or were they paying in a different way? Actually, from the beginning, they were paying on an annual basis, which was great for us because we charged them at the beginning of the year. And actually, although you might think that the customer preferred monthly billing from a sort of cash flow point of view, in reality, schools in our particular sector really did operate on an annual budget cycle and it's quite difficult to take students out of schools midway through the year anyway and they did a big annual planning process so it was actually more effort for them if you went and said can you pay each month and so quite quickly we realized that the thing that would work for our customers and for us was a sort of 12 month subscription. It must have been a pretty simple kind of sell to get in the door with these people or was it was it much harder for them to even listen to a young person who had this idea to revolutionize the way in which communication happened between students and teachers yeah I think initially it was a bit marmite some schools loved the idea of some students taking some initiative doing something for their own school and then being able to make a difference to their school as well other schools who are maybe sort of slower adopters saw that as sort of huge risk incredibly young people who don't know what they're doing and we only buy software that's been doing what it's been doing for the last 10 years and funnily enough it doesn't innovate very much there was multiple camps there but there was definitely enough in the early days of those schools who could see the opportunity things were changing quickly in software for schools and I think the case study if you like from our initial customer and then our initial group of customers was very powerful because we could point to real success stories of solving problems for students and teachers and and latterly parents. And schools could understand that. So that initial cohort of schools was actually really, really important to getting the next 300 schools, you know, which we did over the course of the next couple of years before we then raised finance for the first time and grew it further. And you said you had a team of people helping you with that initial drive to get out there and talk to these schools. How did you set that up? Was that something that you outsourced or you built internally? What did that first lead generation team look like or meeting generation team look like? Yeah, so we tried a few different things. As I say, I kind of realised I needed to do something to try and get some sales in. And one of the things that I found that I was particularly unskilled at at the time was getting those initial meetings So we did some marketing to schools and actually had some success with that. I don't know if you remember the volcanic ash cloud incident back in the day, again, aging myself, but it meant that no planes could fly for ages, which meant that no students could get back to their schools from the holidays, which meant that a lot of teaching suddenly had to go online. It was kind of a pre-COVID years earlier. And so we kind of jumped on the back of that and did some quite successful opportunistic campaigns on that and asking schools to make sure they were prepared for the next volcanic ash cloud. Little did we know it was actually going to be a pandemic. I recognised I wasn't particularly good at getting those first meetings and didn't really know what I was doing. And I was cold called literally as I was going through this by a cold calling business that we ended up using. And almost the act of the cold call, the sort of penny dropped I had a problem, they'd rung me just as I had that problem, they'd talked to me about it, built some trust, and I really felt like they might be able to help us solve our problem, and it worked on me, and I thought, well, if it works on me, maybe it works on other people as well. We started off quite small, they did a trial, I was put to try and book a certain number of meetings, 10 meetings I think, which sounded like a huge number at the time to me, and they were able to book 10 meetings quite quickly. And that really began the flywheel of having some meetings for me to be able to go and visit. And I think also I had to brief them. 
And I learned quite a lot in the process of briefing them of, again, who are we going after? What are we actually saying to them? Who are the different stakeholders? Why are we different? Which I'd sort of begun to form in my head, but they were very kind of loose thoughts. And when you start writing things down or trying to explain them to other people, it can help get a lot clearer for yourself, I think, as well. Yes, definitely. A couple of things that I pick up there, the way in which this supplier built trust and how you started small with them and you gave them a very clear idea, but also the importance of making sure that you brief them well enough. And now you're in a situation where you've got to write down, do I really know who I want to talk to? And do I really know why they should talk to me is a good discipline. And we know that as ideal customer profile, but it's funny how it always seems to be the starting point of any go-to-market strategy is, am I crystal clear? on the customer and the problem I solve for them. You say the starting point of any strategy, but I still come across businesses where I'm not sure that was the starting point of the strategy. And actually, as the company grows, one of my big learnings, and it wasn't just me, and there was not just an agency doing some cold calling, but actually a marketing team and an internal sales team and over time an internal SDR team that we did build up ourselves. Being able to write down and align on all of those things that you just mentioned is so critical because it's very easy as the team grows for different people to have different conceptions of that. And then your marketing is speaking to a different audience or about a different problem than will happen when somebody picks up the phone and speaks to them and it quite quickly gets disjointed and not particularly successful. Let's talk about when you made your first sales hires. What was the pivot point for that and what did it look like? I'll go right from the beginning because we had probably a couple of failed first sales hires, which in retrospect, I think, apart from not knowing what good looked like for a professional salesperson, I think that was a big part of the problem. But also, I shouldn't blame the people too much. I think it was just being too early. So another learning was I then, after the first sort of two failed hires, did a lot myself and learned a huge amount about the market and was able to put more of a kind of framework in place of what the successful sale look like so that was an early learning and then when we did hire the person who went on to become our amazing real first salesperson if you like they did an amazing job and it was kind of when there were too many meetings for me to go to and there was a kind of track record of kind of know the kind of things that we need to talk about in these meetings and the kind of problems we need to talk to the customer about so we had that level of understanding of what was required And over time, I had built up my understanding as well of what a good salesperson looked like and really got there and had an amazing first salesperson who was critical to the growth of our business. What are your tips on hiring the right first person? You had some mishires, but what did you think you did differently to find the right person? And what were you looking for trait-wise in that individual that they were right for you at this stage of your journey? One of the early learnings I had, and again, don't know if it's specific to our sector, was some of the failures we had initially was thinking, I didn't know a lot about sales and I knew even less about salespeople. Maybe we can take someone with deep subject expertise, for example, a teacher, and we can get them to sell the product because they know everything about teaching. They'll be able to build rapport with the customer who is by and large a teacher. It didn't work very well. I guess the sort of thought process for me or the the learning there was sales is actually, it's not even one skill, but it's a set of specific skills and traits, as you say, and you need to be looking for people who have those. And actually, we know quite a lot about schools 
and there's a certain amount that we can help them get up to speed on that. And indeed, our customers know and our prospects know quite a lot about schools. So this doesn't need to be a person necessarily who's an expert in solving every problem that they have in their school. They need to be able to talk cogently about the problem we solve and help somebody through the sales process. So you asked about traits. I think I feel very strongly that sales is a profession. I think often in the UK, it's seen as something that people kind of fall into. And so I think the first thing is, is someone who really sees sales as a profession and understands that there are skills that they need to develop and may well have developed over time. Related to that, I do think even for an individual salesperson, there's a lot of science in sales. And yes, there's some art, but there needs to be an understanding that there is a sort of process to go through and a set of steps to take in order to maximise your chance of success and ultimately help the clients that you can help and not spend lots of time on prospects that you can't help. And so being able to kind of suss that out with good questioning early on and also being able to control the sales process. I think my initial prejudice, if you like, is the buyer should be able to control everything. It's their school, you know, they're choosing what to do. We'll just sort of wait and see what they want to do next. And it's far too pushy to try and sort of move them forward. But actually, I quickly learned that if anything, I think, buyers prefer someone to actually help them through the sales process and have a clear understanding of we've talked about this now we've gone through these various things and this is what we need to talk about next and actually let's put this in the diary now because otherwise we're not going to have the conversation when we need to in order to actually solve your problem type of thing so people who get that kind of process and science behind sales I think is incredibly important what about culture? What about the individual themselves? I mean, you're an early company. How many people were in the company when you hired this star salesperson or even your first salesperson? We needed somebody who could come in and be a bit of a self-starter and be able to deal with a significant degree of ambiguity. And I think later as we grew and interviewed a wide variety of salespeople, there are different salespeople for different stages of the journey and even when you get to 50 or 100 people at which point we had a team of salespeople, that's still a different job if you're in a team of salespeople of five than if you're in a team of salespeople of 500 in a large business with a brand that everybody immediately recognizes as soon as you speak to them so we definitely needed someone who was kind of excited about joining something kind of a new and a bit different and also was able to operate in an environment where not everything had been decided or pre-prepared. Did you have an employee option scheme in place early on, so everybody had a share of the upside and success? Yeah, so we did a couple of things to kind of incentivize and share. In the early days, we actually had a bonus scheme essentially for everybody in the business. Based on profit, we were a bootstrap business, so we needed to, to be profitable. And we always incentivized sales as well on sales, a mixture of kind of individual contribution and team contribution, because we found when we then got to two or three salespeople, a lot of the time they were supporting each other, whether it was because somebody couldn't do a meeting or there was some particular piece of expertise. So we wanted to have a balance of being rewarded for your own performance and also being rewarded for how you help the team. And then when we went on to get VC funding, we actually did a more structured option scheme and we put everyone in the business within that option scheme, which was a sort of deliberate decision because we felt that everyone would contribute to the success of the business and should be part of that success. How did 
things change when you took that first institutional investment at Series A? In many ways, lots of things changed. In other ways, we continued on with the product that we had. But what it did allow us to do was just move much more quickly. And probably in retrospect, hindsight is a beautiful thing, isn't it? We were bootstrapped for a number of years and had to stay very, very lean. And particularly when you're selling subscription contracts with very, very high retention, we knew that once we got a school signed up, we could do a great job for them on an ongoing basis and they would be a customer for many, many years. And so it was worth some initial investment in the getting the sale over the line, given the payback that we were going to get. So what VC funding helped us do was make more of those investments, grow our sales and marketing team. And also we made investments in product and tech as well, which allowed us to expand our platform. How did the sales team change? How did the structure change when you took the Series A funding? Did you need to bring in more experience at that point to help you with things like forecasting? And let's talk a bit about how you then structured the whole sales organisation from that point on. Things did change as the team grew. And as I alluded to, we did need to bring in new leadership in order to operate at that kind of new scale, essentially, because there's both a recruitment job to be done, and as you say, a sort of process and porting and forecasting job to be done. The other thing that was sort of happening really in parallel with this is I'd mentioned we'd used an external agency to do outbound calling earlier on. We shifted that internally and started to build out an SDR function. And again, that sort of happened reasonably in parallel with the investment piece. So at that point, we started to kind of specialise, I guess, the sales team. We had some account execs who would specifically do the meetings with schools once we got the initial interest. And we had the SDR team whose sole job was to book those meetings in with schools. I touched on alignment earlier. One of the reasons we took it in-house was as we were doing more marketing and the marketing team was also growing and we were doing more digital marketing and more events. And we'd also reach critical mass. I think it's really tough. And I certainly sort of haven't yet solved it when you're hiring the first SDR. It's a tough job. They deal with a lot of rejection every day. It's often people who are quite early in their career who naturally therefore need a certain degree of mentoring and development. And I think it's really hard to do that when they're the only person in the business doing that role. As the business gets bigger and you've got multiple SDRs and you've got someone managing that team, I think that starts to become a lot easier. That certainly was our experience. One thing that Jason talked about at Sasta London was this idea that there are a few people who want to be SDR managers and that if you find these people, they're worth their weight in gold. Would you agree with that? And did you find someone that wanted to have that role as you built the business? Yeah, I would agree with that. And we did bring someone in to lead the SDR team over time. And that was a big step forward. I think, again, one of the learnings, and it's not particularly specific, I think, to SDR or even sales more generally, but often the best people at a specific role are not necessarily the best managers. And again, I think I've learned that through the journey. And sometimes people themselves have an assumption that if I'm the best salesperson, the natural next step is to manage the sales team. And actually managing a sales team, particularly at scale, is very, very different from being an individual salesperson. I can say exactly the same for SDR, the sort of day-to-day of making the calls and speaking to prospects is very, very different than I think it's quite a heavily kind of process and learning and development focus if you're the person who's managing an SDR team for the reasons I gave earlier. At this point, you've got a steady flow of customers. How big is it? Because the question I have in mind is what was happening then to the after sales, to the account 
management or even the customer success part, when did you bake that element into the sales process or does it not even sit within sales? Yeah, so we had a few different models actually over time, but it was something that we recognised right from the start, perhaps because we had been on the coalface inside the customer and actually, although we didn't know we were doing it, doing training, doing onboarding, doing support, doing account management, doing all of those things. In our space of schools ed tech, we found that schools really needed that support. They're actually quite large organisations. You know, if you look at other sort of enterprise sales, schools are not that dissimilar. They've got potentially a thousand students. Each of those students might have sort of one and a half to two parents or guardians or carers. So now we've got another 1,500, 2,000 people. And then you've got all the staff at the school. So it's actually quite a big enterprise. But what they didn't have is particularly big IT teams. It might be one full-time person or one and a half, but it wasn't a big IT team. So we kind of recognise the importance of providing that support, both from a sort of technical, how do I do this point of view, but also importantly, how do I make the most of this software, right? It's quite a big change for a school to be sharing all of their resources for learning or setting their homework using a system that they haven't been using before. So it was critical that that we did that. So initially, I mentioned, I think, when we hired the first salesperson, there were two or three other people in the business. The very first hire was someone who focused on support and after sales, essentially. So right from the start, that was kind of baked in. And we invested a lot in that as the company grew. At the time we raised Series A, we were about 300 customers. At the time we sold the business, and today we're about 900 customers. For for a while, that was a completely separate team. We actually had a team called Client Experience, and that was separate from the sales and marketing organisation. In the last few years prior to exit, we actually moved customer success into a revenue team. So sales and customer success sat within the overall revenue function. So I've kind of seen both models and probably I think both have their pros and cons at different stages. And Was that a chief revenue officer at this time? It was, yeah. At what point do you think that it's the right time to bring a chief revenue officer in? I mean, how big does did the business get before you needed that skill set? To a certain extent, I'd need to know a lot more about the business than just its raw size to kind of advise that. By that point, we had a significant sales team a significant marketing team actually and significant customer success as I mentioned so you had leaders within those teams and I felt I needed to bring someone in who could manage managers and also work really closely with the board and myself on the strategy of the business and that was the sort of thing that triggered bringing in a CRO. We also did a couple of acquisitions. So one of the things that we learned in our space was there were lots of quite small businesses with quite good products, but it was quite challenging for schools because all these different products that they had to knit together. So we then started to look at potential other businesses we could acquire and sell into our customer base. And again, that's where it was really helpful having a chief revenue officer around the table who could help evaluate those deals, evaluate those businesses and understand what they were doing already from a kind of sales and go to market point of view and how we could fit them into our structure and talk to the board and inform all of us on the board as well as the leadership team about that. So that was also kind of, I think, a key thing that we were trying to do at that stage with that role. So you've built momentum. You've got, what, eight, nine hundred customers companies moving at full tilt and then you get this opportunity to exit 
What was that experience like? Exit, as I'm sure anyone will tell you, is quite an experience. And certainly the process leading up to it is a pretty busy period. So the main memory is just how busy it all was. I mentioned that we had done a couple of acquisitions and we'd done them and we had been really successful in integrating their products and selling them into our customer base and ultimately giving schools a better experience with a more joined up platform. And we felt there was a real kind of gap in the market, actually, within EdTech. We could see people doing acquisitions, but a lot of the acquisitions were almost kind of financial engineering. It was sort of, let's bring together a a load of different companies, and then somebody will turn up at the customer with a sort of catalogue and say, you know, which one do you want? With no kind of rhyme or reason about how the things fitted together or why you would use multiple of them at once. And we thought, no, there is an opportunity for consolidation here, but it needs to be done in a thoughtful kind of, in a sense, product led way or customer led way of bringing together things that make sense. We'd done the couple of acquisitions. We'd kind of proven that it could work and we wanted to do some more. And we knew that for that, we probably needed some additional capital from a type of investor that would support that and sort of did that day in, day out, which was more of a kind of private equity community. So we'd actually appointed EY to give us some advice on going out to the private equity community and also helping us refine our sort of target list of the next acquisitions that we wanted to do. So we did a load of work preparing for that, got really far down the line with a couple of funds, actually spoke to a lot of funds in the process, built more and more conviction that consolidation made sense. And kind of in parallel to that, our ultimate acquirer had just started speaking to us initially about technical integration. Uh, They have a complementary product in the edtech space and they wanted to integrate with our system. And as we got to know them better, they started to talk to us about more fundamental partnership. As we got a better sense of their culture and their product, we could see how aligned it was to ours and how aligned what they were trying to do was to our view about the edtech market, about bringing really good quality products together in a thoughtful way and solving some problems for schools that you couldn't solve if you were doing all of these things individually. And the kind of conversations went on from there and we were lucky in a way that we'd done all the preparatory work and we had sort of data rooms ready as a result and so on that we were able to share with them and then yeah we were able to close that deal in January of this year. That must have been an amazing feeling to actually have built this from the humble beginnings of you being in a classroom to something that's so universally understood and accepted by schools now and we we didn't touch on competition because there must have been lots of others creating like products out there but you get to a successful end, which at the end of the day, I suppose, for most entrepreneurs, that's what the goal is. It must have been an incredible feeling. Yeah, it was an amazing feeling. And it was a load of hard work to get there. It's certainly not something that you sort of think about when you're sitting in your bedroom age 16 and building a school project. As the business went on, one of the things I felt really passionately was a desire to not only have an impact on the students that we were having an impact on today, but build a sustainable business that almost becomes bigger than you are, right? It's something that can live on and make a big difference and continue to grow. So I think both me and my co-founder were always quite pragmatic about how we could do that with other people's support, whether that was advisors in the early days, whether it was VC investors, whether it was ultimately an acquirer who was that bit bigger than us. That in a way for me, that's the sort of one of the most rewarding parts of it is knowing that you've built something that's kind of self-sustaining at that point and could go on to do bigger and and better things over time. What are the early takeaways? Because the acquisition happened, what, beginning of this year? 
and you're getting used to this new way of working now. What are some of the key observations at this point, what, some seven months into an acquisition? Yeah, so one of the early calls that I sort of made was I wanted to focus on making the integration. And by that, I mean the company integration, not just the sort of technical product integration, but the integration as success. And that became my role from the day post-close. And I'm really glad we did that because we were able to, I think, build some real momentum in integrating the businesses and, and doing that in a thoughtful but also a way with pace. And, you know, got some learnings from the, the two businesses we acquired and the importance of doing that and wanted to be able to take that into the, the new business. So it's a good question about integration. That's what I've been sort of doing for the last six, seven months and really just focusing on that. And it's interesting because we were looking at, in a way, two quite different routes. We started off looking for private equity funding, which would very much have been us as a standalone business and it ended up being acquired. But again, I felt very strongly that in the acquired route with exactly the right partner that we found with that really good fit, we wanted to integrate the businesses as quickly as possible because that's the way that we would actually get the benefit of being part of that bigger organisation. And so, again, yeah, I've done quite a bit of work both on kind of organisational structure with the team that acquired us and also sort of processes and systems to make sure that we can all, both the people in the, the Firefly team and the people in the Veracross team, can kind of benefit from the companies being brought together and ultimately deliver a better solution for customers. One of the things that is interesting, and again, was some of the learnings we had, that we have kept the brands separate. So from a kind of customer brand point of view we still have a firefly brand we have a veracross brand they've actually got other businesses in their portfolio as well which have done similar but trying to make sure kind of behind the curtain that we can get as much support into all the various different places and benefit from being part of that bigger business let's go back to i suppose thinking this has been a great opportunity for you to reminisce over the entire journey but if there were any things that you would do differently if you would decide to do this all over again what would you do differently next time? I would try and get help more quickly from people who have done things before when you're tackling things you haven't done before. And maybe it's just because the way my mind works, I love solving problems and I love learning things, which has stood me in quite good stead. But equally, there are points which sort of reinventing the wheel is not worth it. And actually being able to solve the problem 10 times more quickly is very, very valuable. So as kind of intellectually stimulating as it might be to work out from scratch how to build a pipeline out in Salesforce, there are some people who've done that before and actually you can get some good advice from them. And related to that as well, I think, when you're hiring roles for the first time, knowing what good looks like is a massive shortcut to success. If you haven't hired it before, you don't necessarily know that. And again, that's something where you can get some external help actually quite easily from people who have hired lots of, for example, salespeople before. Brilliant. Great insight, Joe. Uh, we have a tradition on the show to wrap up with a couple of military-themed questions. And I don't know if you picked up on this, but prior to my time in working with startups is I served in the Royal Marines and that's hence the name behind Startup Lines. I see a lot of similarities in early stage businesses and, and gaining traction. So I've got a couple of quick fire questions for you. Right. So the first one is, like military commanders, uh, startup founders have got to be prepared to make tough decisions. Can you recall a time when you had to make a really difficult decision? And how did you navigate it? 
there's sort of strategic decisions, right, about where do we take the business, who do we target, which customers do we focus on. As we grew, we had the opportunity to go after more markets internationally, and actually 25% of our business now is outside the UK. But we did have to make some difficult decisions there about which markets and which geographies to focus on and where to place investment. And we didn't always get those right. And then you have to be able to come back to it and review and potentially take a different decision. And by that point, there's a lot of kind of organisational momentum that's gone into that particular market and a lot of disappointed people who've worked really hard on that. So I think there are those kind of strategic decisions and we definitely had those over the years in terms of where to place investment and focus. And as I say, you can't always get it right the first time, but you have to be prepared to get it wrong sometimes, otherwise you wouldn't do anything. On the people side, particularly early on, I think I found it really hard when, as we did grow and different people were needed at different stages, was having those conversations, coming to the conclusion yourself apart from anything else and making that happen. And, you know, I was always very sensitive to the fact that these were people's jobs and careers and people have thought a lot and they joined us at a a critical point for the company. And, And in some cases, we were able to actually move people into slightly different roles, which better suited their skills and interests. And we were able to do that really successfully. Again, those conversations aren't always easy and they they can be a challenge. And in other cases, we weren't and people moved on and then did amazing things in their next job. So actually, over time, those became a little bit easier for me as I understood that fundamentally, it's just as important to the employee as it is to the business that there's a good fit between what's needed and the expectations at a particular role at a particular stage and the kind of skills and interests and excitement of a person. And actually, it's not good for either of those two things that are not in alignment. And generally, if people have done a really good job for you in one role, they're going to have an amazing career of some kind. But those are tough and those are not easy conversations. And sometimes people come to those realisations at different paces and sort of aligning all of that is a challenge. Last question. In the military, the concept of leave no one behind is paramount. How did you ensure that as the business grew and as you reached that point of acquisition, that you kept all the team members feeling valued and part of the company's success? Because it's a time where the management team disappear into this really intense period of setting the company up for acquisition. How do you make sure you keep everybody focused and going in the same direction at that time? Yeah, it's a really important question. And one of the things I think you learn going through an exit is how critical your leadership team are, because you kind of highlighted the level of distraction there. But there's particular distraction for you leading the business. And you need to be able to rely on your leadership team to continue performing. And one of the reasons that I mentioned it is such a busy period is you've both got your full-time day job in the sense of making sure the business continues to grow and succeed and perform at a time when actually there's a microscope on it because you've started to provide projections to potential and it was more investors in our case, but you've started to provide detailed kind of forward projections. You're also telling a story about the exciting growth of the business. It's critical that you're able to kind of show that with the results during the period in which you're talking to people. So there's that full-time job which just got harder. And then there is a full-time job really assessing what are the different options, who are the investors or acquirers that we should be speaking to, speaking to them, 
providing lots of information to them, helping them understand from scratch this business that you've built up over several years and questions that, that seem obvious to them, you can seem obvious to you and not obvious to them. So it's very, very busy and you've got to be able to rely on your leadership team to, and we have an amazing leadership team, I'm really proud that the leadership team we've built run the day-to-day business with less involvement from yourself. So I think that was sort of one learning about kind of, it's so important by that stage that you have got that set of people, lieutenants, if you use the military analogy. I don't know my ranks very well, but maybe that's just about right, who can really make sure that the business continues to run. And then in general, I think, in terms of taking people along, we've always been super transparent about what's going on in the business. I think we've surprised some of the people coming into the business about the level of kind of openness about the financial performance of business, whether it's going well or whether we're having challenges. We would regularly keep the team involved in all that. And we would talk to the team about how we saw the market. We'd obviously done a couple of acquisitions ourselves and we had been very open with the team that actually we are looking for further investment of a slightly different kind because we see opportunities in the market and a way of continuing to kind of grow and succeed as a business. And so while we didn't give a sort of running commentary of the different people we were speaking to, and, you know, that's largely around trying not to distract the entire organisation, but also lots of the conversations you have lead absolutely nowhere. So people are following that. It becomes almost impossible to follow for people. Broad brushstrokes, we absolutely did sit and explain. And that obviously helped explain where we were and who we were talking to and so on at the time. And actually, again, I'm really proud of the really positive reaction we had from the team where we did announce the acquisition. And again, ultimately, that was a change in the sense that it wasn't an investor, it was a strategic investor acquirer. But actually, it was part of a wider narrative, which we'd already talked to the team a lot about. And I think the team understood when we sat them down and explained how this could actually help us achieve what we always kind of set out to achieve. Brilliant. Well, it's been a fascinating conversation, Joe. Thank you so much for sharing. I mean, you've done the entire life cycle of innovating, creating the idea to winning those customers, to building a team, to growing internationally. And we didn't touch too much on that to an exit. You're right the way through the life cycle. And it's been a fascinating conversation and listening to your story. Where can people learn more about Fireflies and Veracross and you? Where can they get in touch with you? Yeah, thanks very much. So uh, if people do want to find out more about Firefly, and I said very little about what it actually does, actually, but it's a SaaS platform that connects students and teachers and latterly parents. Parents were not our initial focus, going back to my initial story, but we learned over time the importance of involving parents in their kids' education. You can find out more about Firefly at fireflylearning.com and you can find out more about Veracross, our acquirers at veracross.com. And they provide a really awesome cloud-based student information system, which is an important complementary system to what we do, whereas we focus more from a Firefly point of view on the communication and collaboration. The Veracross system is more about record keeping and understanding all of the important things going on within the school. So the two products interact really, really closely and you can find out more about them on those two links. If you want to find out more about me, you can search Joe Matheson on LinkedIn. Maybe you can put in the notes my LinkedIn. And I always love talking to people about their businesses and their challenges, whether it's in go-to-market or product development as well. So please do reach out. Always happy to chat. Brilliant. Joe, thanks for your time today. Lovely to have you and all the best with the next phase of building your businesses. Thanks, Phil. It was a pleasure. Once again, another fantastic conversation with the founder. And I'm very grateful to Joe for taking the time to talk to us. 
What's interesting about his story is that he took it from initial idea of sitting in the classroom where there was a very clear need and some help that they needed, right the way through to exiting through the acquisition at Veracross. And to hear his story at every stage of the business's journey and how it changed, in the people that he needed to bring in, the way in which he managed relationships within the team, how some people had to move on because they weren't really right for the next phase of the business. All the lessons that he shared there, I think, are really, really important for us to remember as we're building traction. If you like what you heard, give me a five-star rating, but more importantly, share this with somebody that's also building their business. There's a question I tend to ask in every one of these conversations when the recording is finished is, how useful would you have found this if you'd come across a resource like Behind Startup Lines when you're building business? And every single founder says to me, this would be super useful. Joe was at pains to stress that he didn't just say it for the microphone when we were recording the beginning. He genuinely has listened to and enjoyed the stories. And that's coming from a founder who's already had a very big successful exit. So share this with other people, spread the word. And if you're a founder listening to this and you'd love to tell your story, get in touch. I'd love to talk to you. This is Behind Startup Lines. I'm Phil Guest. Over and out.